When we think about the Quran, the holiest religious book for a quarter of humanity, we rarely think about it as a visually rich text. The Quran and Islam in general often enter the cultural imagination through auditory practices such as recitation or even with a mind to the Islamic prohibition of pictures. But is this the whole story? Are there visual aspects to the Quranic text that scholarship has neglected so far? And if we turn our attention to these aspects, how will this shape our understanding of the Quran as a historical document that is a product of its time? Hi, and welcome to Research Bites, the podcast of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows. In each episode, we feature innovative research in the humanities and social sciences by one of our fellows. Let's turn now to Professor David Schulman, who's interviewing Dr. Hanelis Koloska, a historian and philologist specializing in Quranic studies. Hanelis, I'm holding in my hands a book that is called Was der Koran uns sagt, für Kinder in einfacher Sprache. That's the German title, and it means what the Quran tells us for children in easy language. I flip through the pages and I can see it contains a selection of topics and excerpts from the Quran. And it also includes plenty of Islamic illustrations and miniatures from different centuries and different regions. I have to say, I'm surprised to find a Quran intended mostly for Muslim children with so many pictures. Hanelis, isn't this a little unusual? Yeah, I think it is. When you think of the kind of pictures they put, usually you don't find books like this where historical Islamic miniatures are included. But just when you walk down here to the old city of Jerusalem, you'll find plenty of Arabic books for children with stories about the prophets and they all contain pictures. But all these pictures are custom-made and modern. In Iran, you would find entire kind of comic books depicting stories from the Quran. Well, and of course, uh, there are plenty of books in English, like my first illustrated Quran. But again, none of these include old Islamic illustrations. So these books don't follow a pictorial Islamic tradition that might lead back to the old miniatures. Well, I suppose that some books in Iran might follow a certain pictorial Shi'i tradition. But all the books I saw here in Jerusalem? No. They were unrelated to this rich Islamic tradition. Do you think the authors of this children's book that I'm holding, they're a Muslim theologian, Hamide Mohakagi, and a scholar of religious education, Dietrich Steinwede, do you think they're aiming at drawing the reader's attention to this somehow neglected wealth of pictorial tradition? Certainly. On the one hand, an illustrated book is always good considering our general preference for visualization of in all kinds of topics, right? And on the other hand, I think the editors indeed want to draw the attention of the reader to this diverse and long tradition. I assume that they are all in all aware that pictures have their very own expressiveness. It looks as if they included them as yet another voice. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there are no illustrated Qurans per se, are there? You're right, there are no such Qurans. So these pictures are taken from other sources? Yes. Uh, take, for example, the illustrated world history, the Jamia Atabarikh of 
Rashid ad-Din from the 14th century, it's a masterpiece of Islamic painting. Or the Qisas al-Anbiya, the stories of the prophets. These are collections of stories from the Quran and Islamic literature where we find wonderfully illustrated manuscripts. Nowadays, of course, it's so easy to get to these images. I mean, just search the internet. Museums are now digitizing more and more of their collections of illustrated manuscripts. Isn't there a kind of tension here? We're talking about the richness of Islamic visual cultures over the centuries. But Islam prohibits figurative images, does it not? Am I right that this negative attitude toward pictures is based on the Quran itself? So that's the thing. It's generally thought of this way, but this prohibition has no scriptural base. It derives its authority from certain hadith, sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. And they state that a person who tries to emulate God's creative force will face damnation on Judgment Day. But the legal force of these statements was interpreted differently in different periods and places. So the fact that we don't have illustrated Qurans actually has nothing to do with the religious prohibition of pictures. It is a result, in my view, of what the nature of the Quran is for the believers, namely that the Quran is direct divine speech. What does it mean that the Quran is direct divine speech? The Bible is also assumed by believers to be the word of God, but we find old illustrated manuscripts of the Bible, also modern publications, of course, that do include pictures. Well, the Quran shares basic assumptions with the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament about prophecy, about scripture or revelation. But in contrast to Judaism and Christianity that see the Bible as inspired by God, in Islam the Quran is considered as God's direct address to mankind. Many verses in the Quran reflect on its specific nature as of divine origin. This is why it's not just a book that meant to be read or dwelt upon, rather it's more than a book. The Quran is the medium, in this case the language or speech in which God turns to man, and through the Quran communication between God and man is possible. Is the status of the Quran then comparable to that of Jesus Christ in Christianity, who is believed to be the Logos, the incarnation of the Word of God? You know, Harry Wolfson, a historian and philosopher, raised exactly this issue. He showed that within Islamic theology, the Christian concept of incarnation was appropriated to the Quran. So he speaks of in liberation, that's from the Latin word liber, so coming to a book, instead of incarnation, becoming flesh. So... You could talk about like incarnation is fleshification and in liberation is bookification. But as much as I like this really intriguing comparison, the term in liberation or bookification is misleading in one significant aspect. The Quran in that sense is considered as a book. But actually the Quran is not a book. It's an oral performance, it's recitation, it's speech. Wait a minute. Uh, when I read the Quran, I'm holding a book between my hands, am I not? <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
In its final form, the Quranic text has a book format. Well, from a certain time onwards, the oral utterances of the Prophet Muhammad were collected, they were canonized and finally codified in a book. But uh, this text still has a character of an oratory. It's the recitation, not the silent reading that is considered the decisive way of performing it. This is why a Quranic codex can be beautifully decorated to impress by its sheer exterior beauty, but the importance lays in its oral usage. So it just happens to have the form of a codex or a book, but you can't read it as a book from beginning to end. You'll either feel lost very quickly or you might think the Quran is marvelously postmodern. The surahs, the individual parts of the Quran, were collected and broadly arranged according to length. So you will find now the longest in the beginning and the shortest surahs in the end. If you want to read it, start from the end. The shortest surahs are chronologically also the first ones, so reading in reverse order can also give you an idea of the development of the Quranic text and the Quranic message. Children in school also start learning and memorizing the short surahs first. Do they do that in order to follow the actual historical development of the Prophet? No. no. Chronology is more of an interest for scholars like myself. Children learn it this way so that they can use verses or surahs in the daily ritual prayer. During the five daily prayers, Muslims recite parts of their choice from the Quran. The moment of prayer and reciting the Quran offers the opportunity to experience God and God's word as we spoke about it. And also to step out of time into the moment when Muhammad received and recited the verses. So the Quran as recited in prayer is something like a remembering or a reenactment of the moment of revelation itself. That's very fascinating, and it opens up a lot of questions about the institution of prayer and the uses of the Qur'an in liturgical life. But let me go back to my question about the absence of pictures in any Qur'an. You argue that this lack has to do with the fact that Muslims believe the Qur'an is God's word. It is divine, and as such it cannot be surpassed. Unsurpassable is a really a good keyword. There's a whole Islamic scholarly tradition that deals with literary and rhetorical qualities of the Quran. It developed into the doctrine of Yajaz, the inimitability of the Quran. That means that the Quran is matchless, it's unique, and it's impossible to imitate in its literary features. So if one considers every syllable of the Quran as inimitable, and believes in the text's rhetorical and literary supremacy and also in its divine origin, then nothing can be added, nor should be added, that diverts the reader or reciter from the text itself. In that case, an illustration could be considered an illegitimate addition to the text. Exactly. It is seen as part of the realm of interpretation, and as such it would have to be separated out from the text itself. So all these magnificently ornamented Qur'an manuscripts, they highlight the status of the text, but they refrain from interfering or mediating between the reader and the text. Is that why the illuminations are not figurative? Yes. 
The ornaments in part are graphic devices to structure the text or frame it. They certainly also reflect the esteem in which the text is held using expensive material and displaying laborious decorations. What about the fact that decorative devices can themselves be figurative? Are there instances like this in any of the manuscripts we have? There are instances, yes, where scholars have pointed out to possible references to actual objects, like a stylized lamp, for example, that serves as a metaphor for the heavenly light surrounding the Quran. But I'm not aware of ornaments that refer directly to a specific paragraph or verse. Annelies, you know this famous saying of the Prophet Muhammad, God is beautiful and he loves beauty. Yeah, sure, yeah. So that comes to mind when you look at Quranic manuscripts. My friend Navid Kirmani is a German-Iranian author and a scholar of Islam. Oh, wow, yeah, he's one of the most distinguished writers in Germany right now. Right, so he quotes this saying as the title of one of his books. And he writes about the aesthetic dimensions and the aesthetic reception of the Qur'an. Yeah, that's indeed a wonderful book about this topic. I would really highly recommend it for anyone interested in the Qur'anic text and its aesthetic dimensions, but I have to admit it's a bit long. Navid is looking at the interior of the text and at the aesthetic experience of the reader. Does this experience derive from literary devices in the text or from the performance of the text in recitation, which you've mentioned? It's a mixture of both. But I have to tell you that there's one thing that Navid Kamani didn't dwell on, one aspect of the Quran that is, in my view, quite important for the aesthetic dimension of the text as well as of its experience. What aspect is that? It's the exhibited visual dimension in the text. I would claim that the Quran is in itself, in many ways, a visual text. What does that mean, a visual text? In my view, there are three main types of visuality in the Quran. First, the text includes visual features like lengthy and vivid descriptions of events. For example, the striking descriptions of hell and of paradise. They are very colorful and pictorial so one can really imagine a vivid picture of these places. And second, we frequently find in the Quran the question, Alam Tara. The most literal translation would be, haven't you seen? But usually this question is taken to mean, haven't you reflected upon? That's correct with regard to the meaning, but the translation points away from the visual dimension, which is the literally meaning of the phrase. And the phrase is part of the recurring topic of sight and seeing. And sight is central for knowledge acquisition and belief in the Quran. Thirdly, and the last type of visuality in the Quran is that there are references to actual pictures. Ah, what kind of pictures? Scholars like Alfred Guillaume and Matthias Ratscheid came across paragraphs in the Quran that they believed referred to real pictures that existed when the Quran emerged. For example, the depiction of paradisiac banquets or certain Christian motives. They assumed, rightly I would say, that religious knowledge was established and transferred not just in text or through liturgical rites, 
but also through images and symbols. And as such, these scholars supposed they must have also played a role in the emergence of the Quran. But how can we know if people in Mecca and its surroundings in the beginning of the 7th century actually knew pictorial representations? Do we have any written sources? Have archaeologists found remains of mosaics or frescoes or drawings of any kind? Let me answer you like this. The Arab Peninsula, or more specific the Hijaz, where Mecca is situated, is not an empty space. It's not at the center, but on the margins of the Mediterranean cultures and religious traditions of late antiquity. And I would like to define late antiquity not as a political determined epoch, but rather as a shared epistemic space. And here I follow uh, scholars of Quranic studies in Germany who use this definition and they are talking about a Denkraum Spätantike. So if there is this shared epistemic space where theological questions or particular religious ideas were commonly known and discussed, then Mecca is part of that shared space. And this space also incorporates images. Now I can easily answer your question. Yes, people in and around Mecca were certainly exposed to pictorial traditions. Just think of all the mosaics and frescoes in churches or synagogues in the Syro-Palestinian area, but also in Ethiopia, and all the coins, the textiles, stone drawings. In Qariyat al-Faw, that's a pre-Islamic city in Central Arabia, archaeologists found amazing frescoes and figurative representations. Images traveled around the region. And uh, last but not least, we have a report by a Muslim historian about pictures inside the Kaaba in the time of Muhammad. Are there also instances in the Quran of what we call ekphrasis? That is to say, the description, a verbal description of a specific image. And if so, do we know what the text is referring to? Unfortunately, it's never so simple. Just uh, as the Quran usually does not incorporate direct quotations from the Bible, but frequently refers to biblical stories, there are no precise descriptions. So we find indirect references to images. That seems a little difficult. How do you distinguish in your research between a reference to a text and a reference to a picture? You're right. Uh, so I follow the methodology of Matthias Ratscheid. If the Quranic text includes additional elements that can be traced back not to a known text, but to an image, this might hint at a reference to a picture. Hannelies, you've published two articles um, about this question of the pictorial background. So perhaps you could give us an example of such an allusion. Uh, it's my pleasure. So the first time I stumbled upon a probable allusion was when I was writing my PhD thesis on Surah 18, on Surah Al-Kahf. There I studied the retelling and appropriation of the Christian legend of the seven sleepers of Ephesus. It's a widely known story in Eastern and Western Christianity that emerged probably in the 5th century. The sleepers, goes the story, are Christian youth who were miraculously saved from their persecutor by taking refuge in a cave where they slept for hundreds of years. The legend was understood as an example and evidence of God's power to save believers and of the resurrection of body and soul. And as such, it's also alluded to in the Quran. Now, the interesting fact in the Quran is the description of the sleep in the cave.
Let's listen to a couple of these verses from Surah 18, as recited by Mahfira Hussein, a famous Indonesian reciter of the Quran. The translation of these verses in a slightly abbreviated form would be If you could look at them in the cave, it would appear to you that the rising sun revolves to the right of the cavern, and as it sets, passes them on the left, while they lay in an open space in between. If you could see them, you might have thought them awake, though they were asleep. We turned them about to their right and left sides, while the dog lay stretched out with his forepaws at the entrance. Had you looked at them, you would have certainly turned your back, and the sight would have made you flee in terror. It's indeed a very graphic and beautiful description. Here and seeing is built into the verses as well. Now, I found that no surviving Christian text includes this kind of description of the sleep. Instead, texts like the famous hymn about the sleepers of the Syrian theologian and poet Jacob from Serug jumps from the moment of falling asleep to the moment of awakening. But then I turned to the Christian images and the depiction of the seven sleepers in Christian iconographic representation is an image of sleepers in a cave. And that is their distinctive feature. Are their icons preserved from that time? No. No, one of the oldest known depictions is included in the Minologium, a kind of prayer book of the Byzantine Emperor Basilius II from the 10th century. But this work is regarded as one of the most important exemplars of Byzantine illumination, and art historians believe that the images there, they follow previous models of images that are now lost. Could it be that the iconographic representation in the Menologium actually follows the Quranic description and not the other way around? That's a good point. We can't rule it out, especially when comparing the later iconographic depiction in Islamic manuscripts and Christian icons, because they have so much in common. Maybe it's more about the shared heritage that both traditions draw upon. And this is, I think, the fascinating thing about the Quran. Images may affect the Quranic text, and again, the text can affect images. Let me try to sum up. We've learned that the Quran moves between verbal, visual, performative, and even musical dimensions. And all of these dimensions or media are interconnected, and they generate different kinds of knowledge and of aesthetic experience. Yes, the Quran is certainly a case of intermediality. So it's a text where different media meet and interact. But if I understand you correctly, this intermediality is still understudied in this field. Sure. If we are talking about the translation of visual knowledge into a literary text, as I showed you, 
I'm really not aware that anyone else is currently working on this. Quranic studies simply have not had their visual turn as yet. And we are far from any conclusion about the visual dimensions in the Quran and the intermediality of the Quran. But uh, I'm working on it. I think it's great that you draw our attention to the importance of images as visual memories and as a means to form and transform knowledge in late antiquity, including Arabia. Could you imagine an illustrated edition of the Quran with the images you believe the text is referring to? Well, that's an idea. We have this book for children here, what we were talking about before. It includes examples of the visual reception history of the Quran. And imagine now another such book that includes examples of images the Quran itself refers to. That would be intriguing. And to see the differences and the similarities between them, the continuities and the contradictions. If I think of the Quran in this way, I visualize it like those pictures that can be deciphered depending on the angle from which you look at them. You can approach it from either side and you will always find something new and something exciting. You have been listening to Research Bites, the podcast of the Martin Bubu Society of Fellows in the Humanities and Social Sciences. In this podcast, we hope to offer a taste or a bite of the research taking place in our society and the kinds of conversations taking place in its offices, hallways, and indeed, the kitchen. Additional episodes discuss matters such as the collaboration between the Catholic Church and the Stasi in East Germany and the discovery of the pulse in ancient medicine. Our thanks to Dr. Oded Erez, who helped produce this episode, Omri Bendor is our series producer, and Ori Dror is our sound recorder and editor. The Buber Society is a German-Israeli collaboration housed at the Hebrew University and funded by the German Federal Ministry of Education and Research. For more information about the Martin Buber Society of Fellows, about this episode, and about additional episodes, please visit our website, buberfellows.org. huji.ac.il That's buberfellows.huji.ac.il